I'm Afwa Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love she Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Today's podcast is about the political and social story behind Shakespeare's first folio, the first book to contain 36 of his plays, 18 of which had not been in print before, that was published in 1623, 400 years ago. This is a story that includes royal families, foreign affairs, industry and commerce, and of course, religion. Now, you may well have heard my first podcast on Shakespeare's first folio, released at the beginning of June, which helped explain what the first folio was, how it was made, and who helped to make it. But today, as another homage to the 400th anniversary year of its printing, we focus on the folio's social and political context. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Christopher Lautaris, biographer, historian, poet, Shakespeare scholar, and Associate Professor at the Shakespeare Institute, the University of Birmingham. The author of many titles, Dr. Lotaris, is here today to talk to us about his most recent work, Shakespeare's book, The Intertwined Lives Behind the First Folio, which was published by HarperCollins, William Collins Imprint, this year. Be prepared to be taken on a journey through the personal and political ties that made the first folio possible. What threatened its completion? and how it continued to be a political tool in the years after its publication. Dr. Lotaris, welcome to Not Just the Tudors. It is wonderful to be speaking about Shakespeare's first folio in this anniversary year. We've explored this a little bit on the podcast already in terms of thinking about the production. But today, I'm excited that we're going to have a chance to really get into some of this background, the personal, the political, the international context of the first folio. You've written about this and it explains so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Looking forward to talking about this most important of books in its 400th anniversary year. So let's go back a little bit before 1623. Let's go back to just before Shakespeare's death to start with, to set the scene on some of the sort of personal ties that would go on to shape the production of the first folio. Can you Tell me about Shakespeare's friends, John Hemmings, Richard Burbage, Henry Condor, and why they'd become such close friends of Shakespeare's. Hemmings, Condor and Burbage, I guess, were among the most senior members of the Kingsmen playing company by the time of Shakespeare's death. So originally that company had been known as the Chamberlain's Men. It was set up in 1594 under the patronage of Henry Carey, a nobleman who 
took the company under his wing, really, and helped it to flourish and to become one of the most successful theatrical companies of the period. And by the time of Shakespeare's death, Hemmings and Condell had been slowly working their way up to becoming the company's senior theatre managers. Richard Burbage, who was the son of James Burbage, who was the theatrical impresario, who actually helped give the whole company its foundation, really. He built the Shoreditch Theatre, Theatre with a capital T, which was the playhouse where Shakespeare cut his teeth as a dramatist in his earlier half of his career. And Richard Burbage grew up in the theatre industry and he became the age's most celebrated and important actor. So by the time of Shakespeare's death, you have these three important senior figures who were the only three London intimates we know for certain Shakespeare mentioned in his will. So in his will, he gives all three of them money to buy mourning rings. And this is a really touching thing because this appears to have been a kind of afterthought. Shakespeare, we think, possibly from evidence from his will, had been taken a bit unawares, perhaps by an illness towards the end of his life, and made some very hasty revisions to his will. And among them were these bequests to Hemmings, Condell and Burbage for mourning rings. Now, it has been argued before that this might have been some kind of pact to seal the deal for the completion of the first folio after Shakespeare's death. We can't prove that. It's a lovely thought, but James Burbage dies in 1619. Had he lived to place his name beside Hemmings and Condell, then we may have had more evidence to support that theory, but we can't be sure whether such a pact existed between them. But it's a lovely thought. And if we think about political ties, can you tell us about the ways in which Shakespeare and his friends were politically connected that would later play a role in the production of the first folio in 1623? Well, I think the way in which they were politically connected has to be through James I. In 1603, when James I accedes to the throne of England, he takes over the patronage of the king's men from George Carey, who's the son of Henry Carey. Shakespeare and his fellow players, Hemmings, Condell, Burbage, and the other sharers in the company, become the king's men. So part of their duties as the king's servants would have been to perform at the court. And so that would have tied them in a way to James I's policies, to his interests, to his tastes. And this did have an impact on the creation of the first folio and how it was put together and the kinds of personnel who were brought into the project. So I guess being the king's men came with a significant responsibility when it came to falling into line, if you like, with the king's own preferences and with his foreign policy, as we'll see, because we tend to think of the first folio as an inward looking publication. But in actual fact, it's quite outward looking. It's partly about England's relation to the rest of Europe, to its closest neighbours, to its allies and to what were then its enemies. And so the first folio has this really interesting place in England's historical relation to those other nations. Let's come back to that because that's such an important point. But I wanted to ask before that about the fact that this required so much gumption. (laughs) You comment that playwriting in the 16th and early 17th centuries hadn't acquired the same status as literature. Publishing the folio, a folio, was this bold, gutsy initiative And so I want to ask, who does the folio say more about? Is it those who are backing the project, you know, the printers, the publisher, the booksellers? Is it the friends who are initiating it? Or is it possibly, given what you've just alluded to about the possible pact, that Shakespeare himself had 
you know, the idea of overseeing his writings before he died. Where do you think we need to look for the initiative? That's a really good question, and it's incredibly hard to answer. And the answer depends on who you ask and where they're coming from. So I guess there are a number of different ways of looking at it. When we think of the first folio, we do tend to think of the initiators of that folio as being John Hemmings and Henry Condell, Shakespeare's friends, fellow actors, commemorating him after his death. So there's a kind of emotional pull attached to the creation of this fabulous book. They're often referred to as the editors of the folio. It's a somewhat misleading term because what constituted editing then and now are two slightly different things. But in actual fact, we don't know for sure whether the idea originated with Hemmings and Condell, whether Shakespeare had the idea before his death and was working towards it. What Hemmings and Condell actually say in the first folio is that Shakespeare, they use the word right, Shakespeare had the right to oversee the publication of his own works, but he was deprived of that right by death, which seems to suggest that maybe he was working towards it, or this is something he would have done had he lived. And it's important to remember that his friend and rival, Ben Jonson, the playwright and poet, also oversaw the publication of his own folio of works, which was published in 1616, but he had been working on it for a number of years. So Shakespeare must have known that Ben Jonson was working on his own folio, and that may have influenced his decision. Of course, we can't be sure. But then there's an argument for saying that who publishes a book just for the sake of friendship? A folio is an incredibly expensive book to put together. It would have cost a fortune at the time. One estimate for the cost of producing the folio in terms of the total outlay of cost is £250, which is over £33,000 in today's money. So that was a huge amount of money. And if you put that into context, you know, artisan of the period, maybe a goldsmith or a shoemaker would have made about four or five pounds a year. So £250 is a colossal sum. So this was an expensive book. So we could argue, there's a possibility at least, that the idea originated with one of the financial backers of the first folio. So just to explain this, the first folio was financed by four businesses working in tandem in a consortium or a syndicate to help meet these colossal costs. And they included father and son printer publishing team, William and Isaac Jaggard, Edward Blunt, William Aspley and John Smethick. So these were four businesses who came together to produce the first folio. And it's possible that either the Jaggards or Blunt had come up with this idea. They were the two kind of senior financing businesses. So maybe they saw a kind of opportunity, a business opportunity, and then went to Hemmings and Condell with the idea. So we can't be sure who originated this idea or whether it actually began with Shakespeare himself and whether he was interrupted in this endeavour by death and therefore passed on that legacy, that responsibility to his friends or even to Blunt and Jaggards, because we don't know for sure whether he knew them or not. And there's a sense that if it cost this much to do, that's a huge expense, but it's also not clear that it's going to be paid back because it's not clear that people are going to want to buy a copy of his plays because it's not really the done thing at the time. So it's a really risky adventure. Yeah, it was a highly risky proposition. One thing you did not publish in folio format were commercial plays because folios are these huge, opulent, lavish, very expensive publications. They cost roughly 15 shillings unbound, which is about £120 today. So this was only for very deep pocketed individuals. 
They could not have been certain there was an appetite for this kind of publication. I mean, Ben Jonson was breaking the mould when he published his own collected works in folio, which included commercial plays, among other kinds of works. And he had the temerity to refer to them as works, because the term works was usually only reserved for great historiographical works of religious or political significance or works by monarchs. And Ben Jonson comes along and he refers to his collected works, among them being commercial plays, as works. And one satirist quipped upon hearing this, he was so outraged. Pray tell me, Ben, where doth the mystery lurk? What others call a play, you call a work. And even Thomas Bodley, of what would become known as the Bodleian Library, refused to stock commercial plays. He referred to them as baggage books, which he believed would bring disgrace to the library and to the university. And so the first folio was an innovation in the sense that it went one step further in publishing within a folio format only commercial plays and referring to them more than once as works within the volume. So again, this was a very gutsy, somewhat unusual and forward-thinking move, which in a way did help to elevate the craft of playwriting because playwriting was not at the time considered as prestigious an occupation as it is today. Yes, and by doing this, they're making some statement for the greatness of Shakespeare's work. You explain in your book that the biggest impetus for this is the death of Richard Burbage in 1690. Now, to someone who isn't a scholar of Shakespeare, this doesn't initially make sense because one would have thought, Shakespeare's own death in 1617 might have been impetus enough. (laughs) So can you make the link for us, please? Yeah. So this is something that I became aware of when I was working on this book. So I set myself the challenge in Shakespeare's book of putting everything in a chronological sequence in a way that had never been done before. So what I wanted to do was from 1619, which is the first period where we get a significant sense of something going on that might be related to the first folio up until the publication of the first folio and then overlay that kind of publication schedule if you like with what were the king's men doing what were hemmings and condal doing what were the poets who commemorated shakespeare in that book doing across this whole period what was happening politically what was happening to the company so i overlaid all these things and when i did that i noticed something really intriguing so as you mentioned shakespeare dies in 1616 And his death goes pretty much unremarked. There was no major outpouring of grief. There seemed to be no immediate attempt to revive his works. So he wasn't mourned in the same way that Richard Burbage was. And what's also interesting is that from the time Shakespeare stops writing solo plays for the commercial theatre around 1613, the publication of his plays seems to slowly diminish and then grind to a halt. So from 1615 to 1619, there are no new Shakespeare plays published. So Shakespeare seems to have stopped being a vendable commodity. And so there's a kind of gap where Shakespeare seems to have fallen out of favour and out of fashion. And then suddenly in 1619, we get an attempt, almost out of the blue, to publish a first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays. We call this the Pavia Quartos because it was produced as a collaboration between a publisher named Thomas Pavia and the Jaggards, William and Isaac Jaggard, who would go on to work on the first folio. And so this is really unusual, you know, so why all of a sudden do we get this kind of 10 plays, some actually by Shakespeare and some not, some were misattributed to him, but there's an attempt to cash in on Shakespeare's name. So what's going on after this relative dearth of Shakespeare publishing? 
So the only event, the major event I could trace was the death of Richard Burbage. And when Burbage died, the mourning was just off the charts. His death and the mourning rites attached to it seemed to eclipse the mourning attached to Queen Anne of Denmark, who died just a couple of weeks before Burbage. So there was this massive outpouring of grief. And it really did seem to cause a tear in the cultural fabric. And I argue in the book that it's logical to assume that this may have suddenly triggered the interest in Shakespeare's works again, because everybody suddenly remembered just how great Shakespeare was, because Burbage was no longer there to bring his works to life. And then people were remembering why Burbage himself was so great. It was because he was ventriloquizing, you know, Shakespeare's great works. The scholar Charlotte Carmichael Stopes had this wonderful phrase, which was something like, people did not realise Shakespeare was dead while Burbage lived. And so after Burbage dies, you can see where this revival might have sprung from. So what I say in the book is not necessarily that Burbage's death triggers the first folio. What it might have done is trigger a series of events which made Shakespeare a vendable commodity again, which rejuvenated an interest in him. And that may have spurred on those who were working on the first folio to see this as a good business proposition, but also on a personal level for Hemmings and Condal, when Burbage died, they must have realised they were the last two senior members of the company left. And I think this would have had an emotional impact on them. They must have thought, we're the last two people who remember the totality of Shakespeare's output through his whole career. If we die, then who will take his legacy in hand and transmit it to the next generation? So I kind of argue there's a logical connection between these events. In your answer there, you raised, though, one of the challenges that threatened to derail the folio as the syndicate was trying to pull it together. Can you tell me about some of these challenges, what some people might call an attempt to create a kind of piratical folio, and how they were overcome? Yeah, good question. One of the major challenges that we believe the first folio syndicate must have had if, and this is a kind of conditional if they were thinking about creating a first folio early on, is the threat posed by this, what we call the false folio, which is this peculiar collection of Shakespeare plays, which we call the Pavia Quartos. Now, this was a very strange project, really, because some of these plays, published in 1619, had false imprints and false dates. And there's been much debate as to why this is. Who were this syndicate trying to fool by producing these plays, some misattributed to Shakespeare with these false dates? And did this result in some kind of negotiation between the syndicate who put together the Pavia Quartos and the syndicate who will put together the first folio? And interestingly, William and Isaac Jaggard, who printed the Pavia Quartos, also went on to become the chief financial backers of the first folio. So there appears to be some kind of connection between these two projects. And there's been much debate as to what the precise connections are. Now, what I argue in my book is that the Pavia Quartos were sparked by Burbage's death, because that's the most logical thing that it seems to me would have triggered an interest in Shakespeare again. And that this then may have led to some kind of negotiation between members of the syndicate or between Hemmings and Condal and the Jaggards and Pavia, which may have resulted in some kind of agreement 
to make the Pavia Quartos look like old remaindered texts, thereby necessitating the need to create false states to make it look like these were printed earlier and therefore they would have been less of a competition for a more grand volume of collected plays, which the first folio became. So there seems to be a connection between those two events. And that's why I took the research back to 1619, because I do think that's a very significant and pivotal year for the first folio. So the Pavia Cortes were one major obstacle. The other obstacle that had to be overcome was tracing the rights holders to numerous plays which would need to be cleared in order for the first folio to be printed. So just to explain why this is, during Shakespeare's lifetime, he did not personally own the rights to his works. The works were owned collectively as a kind of communal asset by the playing company. And particularly during the first half of Shakespeare's career, some of those plays were released to publishers. They were sold on to publishers and stationers who kind of acquired the rights to print these plays. Now, this meant that the company, the playing company, lost the right to these works. So by the time we get to the printing of the first folio, in order to gather together Shakespeare's works, the syndicate needed to track down and negotiate with numerous rights holders to about half of Shakespeare's output. So in total, up to 22 plays had to be negotiated over with up to 12 rights holders. And even with the syndicate's own plays, so the syndicate between them owned eight plays, the king's men managed to hold on to the rights of 14 plays. But this still left 14 plays over which the syndicate had to negotiate with eight different rights holders in order to print the first folio. So that's a lot of negotiating, lots of lost plays to track down. So this was a huge undertaking and another of the major obstacles that had to be overcome before the first folio could be printed. This, in addition to the expense, meant that the first folio was a pretty challenging project. medieval priests so worried that women were going to seduce men with fish that they'd kept in their pants. Who was the first gay activist? And what on earth does the expression sneezing in the cabbage mean? I'll tell you, it's not a cookery technique, that's for sure. Join me, Kate Lister, on Betwixt the Sheets, the history of sex scandal in society, a podcast where we will be bed-hopping throughout time and civilization to bring you the quirkiest and kinkiest stories from history. As promised, there will be... Sex. Anne has said that Henry is not skillful in copulating with a woman and has neither vigour nor potency. And scandal. Everybody just descends onto this crime scene and it's being pulled apart by members of the public sort of as quickly as they can excavate the bodies. And moments which shaped society. Pointy boobs then became a thing and were still a thing into the 1950s. What more could you possibly want? Listen to Betwixt the Sheets today, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. A podcast by History Hit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Let's go back to this point that you raised about England's sense of its place in Europe, because a remarkable aspect of your research concerns the interrelationship between the first folio and the kind of political climate of the 1620s. Can we unpick this by, first of all, thinking about how religion and marriage were causing problems for King James VI and I at this time? Yeah, absolutely. So, James I's grand project, if you like, his kind of pet political project, (laughs) was the marriage of his son, Prince Charles I, to a Spanish princess, the Infanta Maria, sister to King Philip IV of Spain. And this really was his kind of treasured project. He absolutely believed that the way forward for England was union with Spain. And even though there was a kind of peace treaty with Spain in 1604, this didn't really stop conspiracies, plots to assassinate James I and replace him with a Catholic monarch. There was constant tension between the establishment and Catholics. It was still illegal to openly be Catholic. So this was still a tense climate, if you like, for England. And the Spanish match was a very divisive thing. And this is the term that it came to be known as. This marriage was known as the Spanish match. And it really did a polarise opinion. James I was absolutely intent on making it happen. The king's men, as the king's players, had it to, in a sense, at least publicly fall into line with the king's wishes. They kind of literally got in on the act, if you like, by performing a series of Spanish-themed plays during the printing of the first folio. Ben Johnson, who wrote two commemorative poems for Shakespeare in the folio, also produced a series of propagandist court performances trumpeting the virtues of the Spanish match as the greatest thing ever to really get everybody, all the nobility behind the project. And interestingly, the commemorative poets who wrote poems in Shakespeare's memory in the first folio were also connected to Spain in some interesting ways. So two of those poets in particular, James Mab and Leonard Diggs, were Hispanophiles. They translated works from Spanish into English. Those works were published by none other than Edward Blunt, one of the chief financiers of the first folio. So you've got together in the first folio a group of kind of almost popularizers of Spanish letters and culture in England. Blunt was very important in terms of bringing Spanish letters and literature to England. He popularized Cervantes's Don Quixote, for instance, and other works that we consider to have arisen from the kind of Spanish golden age of literature. 
In addition, Martin Droschout, who was the engraver of the iconic title page portrait of Shakespeare, was a Hispanophile. He moved to Spain shortly after producing Shakespeare's portrait, where he continued to work as an engraver. So he was probably Catholic. Hugh Holland, another of the commemorative poets in the first folio, was also Catholic. So we've got here a kind of almost propagandist team, if you like, brought together in the first folio. And that might have been a reflection of this tense political period where James was trying to ensure that England's future lay with union with Spain. And so it's almost as if the first folio preserves in aspic that kind of momentous seismic political period, but it's preserved there almost silently. We're not necessarily aware that it's there. But if you dig into the history a bit, you can actually see that this book arose from a very tempestuous period in English history indeed. Do you have any sense that the political situation ever threatened the existence of the folio? That is a very good question. And I think the answer to that is yes, it may have done. And this is where we come into the realms of conjecture a bit. Because when we look at the first folio's preliminary pages, and these are only 11 pages at the front of the first folio, which include the title page portrait, poems in memory of Shakespeare, and two letters by Hemmings and Condor. But this is an incredibly important preliminary material because it really does create not only an introduction to the first folio's contents, but it's sort of like the beginnings of Shakespeare biography because it's the most that's ever been said about Shakespeare in one place. But something does stand out when you look at this group of people attached to the first folio mentioned in the preliminary pages. The two names that jar in a way with some of the others are those of the Herbert brothers, William Herbert and Philip Herbert. They were brothers. They were the patrons of the first folio. So the first folio was dedicated to them, but they were virulently anti-Spanish. So they headed the court's anti-Spanish faction, if you like. This is very interesting. So what are they doing in this book with preliminary pages whose personnel are largely made up of people who appear to have been popularising Spanish culture in England? And I think one potential answer lies in a mystery. (laughs) This mystery is nowhere in the first folio does anybody think to mention that the king's men are the king's men. So there's no statement anywhere saying, we are the king's men, we are the king's servants. And you'd think they would really want to trumpet that for posterity. It's a bit like having a royal warrant for a shop and neglecting to mention it in any of the shop's publicity or emblazoning the royal arms outside your shop. So this is a rather peculiar thing. And one potential explanation, which I argue for in the book as a possibility, though we can never be absolutely sure, is that... The preliminary pages were still being printed when the Spanish match was a possibility. And in fact, it was exactly at the time when the preliminary pages were being printed around October, November of 1623, when the Spanish match collapses. And there's this public almost outpouring of relief. Everybody seems to be so jubilant that this match has failed. And it must have seemed to the syndicate who put this together with this very kind of pro-Spanish personnel heading the book, that this would have endangered the book. It could have potentially made it unpopular with the public, given just how much jubilation was surrounding the collapse of the Spanish match. 
So one possibility is that they cancelled a dedication to James I, which would have clearly stated they were the king's men, and then replaced that rather hastily with a dedication to the virulently anti-Spanish Herbert brothers. That's the only explanation I could find for this kind of slightly peculiar arrangement in the first folio. We will never know if it's true, probably, but it's certainly an interesting prospect to consider. And again, just the fact that we have these personalities from antithetical sides of the political spectrum does indicate that somewhere along the line, the folio was produced almost in response to these seismic political pressures. And that does explain that great omission of why the folio isn't dedicated to King James. Is this context also something we should look to when we think about production? Because you tell the story of the creation of the folio month by month, and your approach in doing this made something clear to me, which I hadn't thought of before, which is production was repeatedly paused, sometimes for weeks on end. Why is that? Yeah, that's a really good observation because we tend to think of publishing, don't we, today as this kind of something you schedule in, you've got your slot, the book gets done. Whereas this was a nearly two-year project. The actual printing began probably in February of 1622 and wasn't complete until late October, early November, perhaps, of 1623, because we believe the folio probably went on sale around November 1623 sometime. And so there were various reasons for these pauses. One was because the printing house had lots of other jobs to do. So they were working on other books at the time. We know what some of these books were. They were doing what we refer to as job work, which is a kind of daily run of pamphlets and notices. The Jaggard Printing House, they were city printers. So they were almost kind of printers to the king. And so they had to produce documents which were related to the crown, which had the royal arms emblazoned on them, such as official royal proclamations, for instance. So whenever a proclamation came out, they had to down tools in effect and switch to making sure that was printed in time. So they were doing lots of other things. So that sometimes paused production. They occasionally had problems over securing rights to plays in the first folio. So for example, they had such terrible problems securing rights for Troilus and Cressida from a publisher named Henry Worley, that they decided initially to leave out that play completely. And they replaced it with Timon of Athens. And that play may never have survived had it not been for this kind of problem with Henry Worley. It was only after the folio was completed with some of the copies going on sale without Troilus and Cressida that they came to some kind of an agreement with Henry Worley. Troilus and Cressida was added without a mention in the catalogue, which served as the volume's contents page. So in addition, there were other pauses that are a bit mysterious. One of them took place in the summer of 1622. And what I noticed was during this rather lengthy break, the King's men actually take a trip to Stratford-upon-Avon. And they were famously paid not to perform at the Guildhall because there was a long-standing prohibition against playing there. So they were paid off not to perform. But it did lead me to ask the question, what were they doing in Stratford-upon-Avon? Were they looking for papers? Perhaps did Shakespeare's wife, did his widow have some papers that they were seeking out in Stratford-upon-Avon? While there, I imagine they must have gone to Shakespeare's grave and paid their respects, which would have been poignant at any time, but even more so during the printing of his legacy. Did that influence the title page, which has a kind of statuesque funereal quality about it? Is that why that title page was printed in the way it was? 
So this opens up lots of tantalizing questions to which we don't have definitive answers. But the printing of the first folio was a kind of rocky road, full of pauses and hiatuses and challenges, having to go back and negotiate with rights holders, having to search for maybe more authoritative manuscript versions of some of the plays. So there are all sorts of reasons that held up the publishing of the work. But the fact that they stuck with it over so many challenges and put together this colossally difficult project, I think does indicate that there was not just financial profits involved, but there may well have been a deeply personal reason for at least some of the people involved in the project for putting it together. Our discussion has focused so far on men. And I'd love to know if there's any evidence of women playing a role in the creation of the first photo Shakespeare's widow. And was she involved at all? We know women are involved at the time in creating theatres like Margaret Brain and in the guilds. Can we trace any women involved in this production? It's difficult to pin down specific women involved in the making of the folio itself. I think the prospect that maybe the King's men had visited Anne during the making of the first folio maybe having spoken to her and to Shakespeare's daughters, that does conjure at least the tantalising prospect that maybe Anne, Susanna and Judith were somehow involved or discussed the folio. I can't imagine Hemings and Condal not talking about this important project that involved their husband and father, you know, their beloved Will. You know, I would imagine they would have discussed it with them. In addition, though, there is another tantalising nugget of information about this. During the printing of the first folio, towards the end of the printing, Anne Shakespeare dies. So she dies on the 6th of August, and that's just a few weeks before the first folio was actually published. And what's particularly interesting about this is less than two weeks after that, the King's Men re-license Winter's Tale for performance. And we know that the prompt book for that play went missing. We're not quite sure how long it was missing, but the fact that they re-licensed that play for performance less than two weeks after Anne Shakespeare's death, and then it's one of the plays that is performed in the first winter season at court, that does make me wonder if this play meant something to Shakespeare and particularly to Anne, and that's why the King's Men wanted to perform it as a memorial to Anne Shakespeare. And if so, that might suggest that there was some kind of connection between Anne Shakespeare and the first folio. In addition to this, we can trace some of the earlier owners of a first folio, which is a slightly different slant, because we know that the first folio can tell us something about early reading practices for women. So we know that one of the first folios which was owned by a woman. In fact, it's the earliest first folio we can trace to a female owner. Is owned by the Folger Shakespeare Library. I believe it's first folio number 23. And it was signed by a woman named Mary Child. And that book was then subsequently owned by two other female owners. So we know that women were reading and inscribing first folios quite early on, that particular first folio has a provenance which stretches back to 1640. So not very long after the printing of the first folio. So the first folio does have much to tell us about early reading practices for women. So that's a slightly different angle in terms of answering that question. But it's great that you've moved us on to readers and what happens after the first folio goes on sale. 
because I was interested to learn how it continued to be part of this broader political story. So we've got the civil war, of course, erupting across the nations in 1640s. And this is the decade you say that copies of the first folio are making their way overseas. So I wonder whether you think that the journey of the first folio, as it were, overseas was driven by these political events, or is it simply that it's in the hands of people who loved the plays? So we believe some first folios did start journeying across the world, partly for political reasons, but also in relation to more commercial reasons. So one of the earliest first folios seems to have ended up in Padua as a result possibly of trading and diplomatic links between England and Venice. So that it may have journeyed from England to Venice and then from Venice into Padua. This is the first folio I was privileged enough to explore myself and to kind of read and touch, and that was a great experience. But these books did start to go abroad for those commercial reasons, but some of them may very well have been there for political reasons. So for example, some folios turn up in very Catholic environments. There's a first folio in a Jesuit college, for instance, in France, and that may have reached its destination as a result of people fleeing persecutions of Catholics in England and wanting to perform Shakespeare's plays in a more hospitable environment and therefore taking those plays with them. So that's a possibility. But then there are other more, you might think of these as imperial or colonial reasons. So particularly when we get to the 19th century, first folios start to spread across the globe and they're in the hands of avid colonizers. And so where Shakespeare's words are, you often find colonizers not very far away. So just one example of many I could have selected is Sir George Grey. Now, he was a very energetic colonizer. He was the governor of South Africa, Australia and New Zealand. He set up two libraries. He established a library in Cape Colony, what is now Cape Town, in 1858. And he created the Free Public Library in Auckland in New Zealand in 1880. And in both those libraries, eventually, he placed a first folio. And for him, the first folio symbolised, in a way, it was a talisman of what he saw as the greatest that culture had to offer, which was English culture, English literature. And this was part of a kind of colonial project to spread the English language and its cultural values across the globe. And this is where apparent philanthropy, such as the creation of these public libraries, actually conceals a more sinister purpose beneath the surface, because he makes it clear in his writings that he sought nothing less than the obliteration of the local cultures into which these libraries were being seeded. He actually refers to the people there in his own words as savages and refers to them as people not civilised, but still barbarous. And so he saw the first folio as a means of almost removing the indigenous population's language and local culture and replacing it with English, the English language and English literature and culture. And so over that period, we get first folios travelling with other colonisers to India, for instance. So Shakespeare's words do end up becoming enmeshed in a much darker history. And although we approach the first folio with a degree of reverence and awe sometimes, I think it's important to remember that the first folio was not always to the advantage of all people at all times in all places. You know, sometimes there is this much darker history that it's really important to get to grips with and understand so that we can approach the first folio, I guess, with the correct 
level of understanding as to the complexities of that history. That's fascinating. And it's something that's a legacy that's less often considered, that the folio is forged in politics and then continues its political journey in subsequent centuries, even, as you've just explained, becoming tied up with the expansion of the British Empire. Yeah, no book is ever produced in a vacuum, is it? And the first folio is a good example of that. The first folio has always been a reactive and responsive book during its creation and then subsequent to that, as it's passed through generations and generations of readers and consumers, it's always responded to its environment, to the political pressures around it, and to the kind of aims and agendas of those who are using and co-opting Shakespeare's words. Brilliantly put. Thank you very much for giving us a taste of this complex book history, really, of the first folio and how it was created, how it was initially received, how it's been deployed since. And just a reminder to those who are listening, if they would like to know more, because they can't see it behind you as I can, there's a beautiful book by Christopher Lotaris that you can read about this called Shakespeare's book, The Intertwined Lives Behind the First Folio. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Lotaris. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful talking about the first folio with you. Thank you for inviting me. producer Rob Weinberg, my researcher Esther Arnott and Joseph Knight who edited this episode. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter Tudor Tuesday details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast and please rate rank bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen including on spotify it really helps more people find not just the tutors planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.